Good morning. It's such a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're so grateful we can just be here in your number. So, such a blessing to be here to worship with you. Uh, this week, Colleen and I did some driving around, and we happened to be up in the Valoni area, saw a sign on a church. It said, uh, Hear and obey Acts. Eternity is too long to spend in the wrong place. You know, and I thought, well, you know, we go through Acts, I read through it, we've been studying through Acts, and we've been hearing Drew's preaching every Sunday in Acts, and oftentimes when I think of Acts, I think of church history. I don't think so much of what the sign on the church caused me to think, which is that my eternity depends on whether I hear and obey Acts. You know, and there are some great verses in Acts where the gospel is really preached. I think of uh, 4.12 where Peter was preaching to the Sanhedrin and he said, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And there are those places and the, the preachings and the sermons and Acts definitely are focused on showing Jesus Christ and salvation only in him, only in his name. And, and that's true. So hear and obey Acts because eternity is too long to spend in the wrong place. Definitely. But you know, there's a lot in Acts for believers. And I think most of the people here in this room are in that number. I don't assume that all are, but but uh, there's so much for us to hear and obey, not so much that our eternity depends on it, but think of it. It is a life and death matter whether we hear and obey what's happening in the book of Acts. Because if we do, I believe, what they did and had the passion that they did to share with our loved ones, co-workers, friends, neighbors, whomever the Lord brings across our path, their life and their eternity hangs in the balance, does it not? So, so here we are. We're continuing from Acts chapter 14. And I've been so thankful. I've enjoyed so much the way uh, Brother Drew has been taken us through these uh, messages. Uh, and, you know, he, event by event, truth by truth, I have actually felt like I've been there with Barnabas and, and Paul. Um, I remember how he told us, sometimes he shares little details, and I like that. He said that, you know, the town of Iconium, where they were in the outset of chapter 14, was 575 miles from their home church in Antioch of Syria. Well, that's a bit of a distance by ship and a lot of it by foot. And they were in this mountainous area that had this elevation of like 3,600 feet above sea level, if I remember correctly. And so they'd come all this way by foot and by ship, and, and there they were facing fierce opposition, dangers. The people wanted to kill them, and they were just, they had all of these, this opposite, they're right in the middle of their first missionary journey, and it's just amazing to see how they kept going. It is for me. And so I 
as I read these stories, as I listen to Pastor Drew, and I think, can the things that happened in those days in the book of Acts, can they really, can they happen in our day? You know, there's different ways we could ask that question. Like if I were to ask the question, does the Holy Spirit still select people and direct us to, to pray for them and send them out to preach the gospel and gather people as disciples and train them the way the apostles did in the days of the book of Acts? And I think we could all say, oh, definitely, yes, yes. We experience that. We know that's happening. And praise God that that is happening. But what about telling a man disabled from birth, rise up and walk? Is that happening in our day? Well, not that I know of. Can it happen? I absolutely, totally agree with you. Absolutely. Amen. I appreciate that. Yes. Totally. It absolutely can. It did happen. You know, we're here because of a miracle. My faith is based on a miracle. Your faith is based on the miracle as we sang together about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose again from the dead. He is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father. We know that happened, those of us who believe and follow Jesus. I know it happened. I am thrilled that it happened. I'm thrilled that I can be in your number because of the love and the blood that he shed for us. It's amazing. And so telling a man disabled from birth or blind, as Jesus did, you know, from birth, open your eyes and, and see. It's nothing for God to do that. It's so easy. Uh, the question is, is he still doing it today? Well, I think that's some of the questions that we need to think about. Let's turn to that first text that um, we begin. Um, Drew left off at verse 7, and I'm going to pick up on, at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was disabled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. What was it like, do you think? Let's imagine for a moment what it was like to be a man who was disabled from birth in this community. Now, I'm sure that all the things that made life tolerable, much less sustainable in this community, depended on things like farming, herding, building houses, sheds, barns, uh, guarding, all the things that made life possible in this community, he could not do. Instead of being seen as somebody who gave and contributed, he was, he was a burden there, wasn't he? And probably, by some, despised as such. So how valued could he have been in that society? I would think that he's probably no more valued than the woman at the well that Jesus spoke to in Samaria. Remember that? She was despised with her five husbands, and she was at least looked down upon. But a man who was truly despised and hated and uh, a very corrupt man was Zacchaeus in Jericho. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Yes, he wanted to see Jesus. Jesus went directly to this corrupt and hated 
man and said, I need to be in your house today. And Zacchaeus came to believe in Jesus that day and his sins were forgiven and he was saved that day. And you know, it brings up the question, this disabled man, he's the only one paying attention to the message, it seems. Why is it that people so often who are not at the top of the social food chain, why is it that people who are not at the top of the food chain, who are not uh, wealthy, didn't Jesus say it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom, who are not wealthy, but not just monetarily. I mean, you know, this society, I like to alliterate this because this is the things that are honored in society. It's, it, there's wealth in each one of these. Beauty, brain, bronze, and bucks. That's kind of easy to remember, isn't it? Think about that. That's what runs society and what makes people popular, especially in places like high school and college. Um, it's not easy to be or feel, of course you're not usually, but you feel that you're without some important strong trait that would make you popular. And so you have this sense of being despised or undervalued, you know. And I think that's probably what this person was. And in answer to the question, why are so many people who come to the Lord not at the top of the foods? It's harder for them. Um, let's go, go to a, a passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. His letter, the first letter of the Corinthians, starting at verse 26. I'll read that to you. It's, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so, in our text, we read that this man, this disabled man, probably despised, or underappreciated, certainly, was the one who was listening to Paul. And I think we know what or about whom Paul was preaching. He was preaching about Jesus. And I'm sure that this man was loving Paul's words. He was loving our Savior, whom Paul was preaching then. And Paul was looking into his eyes intently, the Scriptures say, and I believe he saw that this man had the faith to be healed. Remember how Jesus often told people, he said, you know, go, your faith has made you well, you know, and so Paul saw the same faith that Jesus saw in so many people that allowed them to be healed. Not that, you know, of course, Jesus sometimes healed people who showed no faith whatsoever because he was God and he was able to do that. But so, where did this disabled man's faith come from? why the scripture is being preached there probably for the first time. These are Gentiles. They don't know about the prophets of the Jews and so forth. Paul is speaking, and he's speaking the words that God is giving him to speak. And as this man listened, we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ, whom Paul was preaching here in this place. 
Now, this miracle that happened, I believe this was not a big show faith healer type of miracle. I actually know that it wasn't. Giving a man who had never walked since birth is not the kind of thing you see happen at the big show faith healer things, okay? You're not going to see it. Or blind from birth, you're not going to see that happen at the big shows. The physical restoration of his paralyzed feet, I believe, was only part of the miracle. Just think about what this miracle took for this man to walk. Muscles, sinews, tendons, cartilage, nerves, all the interconnections of all of these nerves with his brain, and all of the things that were necessary for this man to not just walk. Listen, Paul said, stand up on your feet. And this man, the scriptures say, he leaped, he sprang up. Oh, yes. This is all, this is all of God. This is all of God, only God, only God. But I want to say just in passing that there are more kinds of handicaps than physical. And God is doing miracles. God has done miracles in the lives, I think, of most people here. He has done incredible miracles. You know, the transformation of a soul, I think, is the greatest miracle that God can do. And I know that I'm thinking today of people, especially young people in high school and in college. I know that some of them here from high school and age and college age. Listen, there are people that are neglected like this man was bullied, maybe for the lack of some strong beauty brains, brawn or bucks, you know, that something that, that makes people popular and feels that they're without it. People that are maybe even bullied. But what if the Spirit speaking through somebody who is talking about Jesus should say to a young person today who feels so, so oppressed, in that environment, in this worldly set of worldly values, it feels so unappreciated. What if the Spirit should say to that young person, listen, believe in Jesus. He loves you. You're here for a reason. Stand up on your feet. Take your stand. Stand strong for what you know is true. You know, and I don't want to say it in such a way that you think, well, you have to lack one of these, if you have to lack either strength or beauty in order to come to God, it's not true, of course. Because the scripture is filled, after all, with the Esthers and the, um, uh, the Deborahs, the, uh, the Samsons, and uh, the, 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 the strong and the beautiful, the Davids. And so, but, but I know that there are heroes in our midst, both old and young, Heroes in the sense that no matter what the world is ready to throw at you, no matter that the world is twisted and contorted and its values are out of shape, there are people here in this, in this room, in this community of faith, young and old, who are ready to say, no, I stand. I stand for the love of Jesus. I believe in, in the truth of his resurrection. I stand there, and I walk in that. And if you haven't felt like you can stand there and you can say, I I may be despised. I may be considered not among the most popular, but I don't care. I'm standing for Christ. And maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, and you haven't said that, rise up, young person. Stand on your feet, because you have an incredible God in heaven. You have nothing to fear, nothing to fear.
Also, I wanted to say, think back uh, concerning this miracle. What will heaven remember or view as greater that this man rose and walked or that his sins were forgiven? Remember there was that meeting one time in Jesus, I think it was in, in, in the book of John, where they let down their friend through the ceiling, you know, he's crippled. And Jesus looks at the religious leaders who were gathered there, Pharisees and scribes, you know, and he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? That's in Luke chapter 5. If you want to read that, it's a great story. Listen, God as creator can do the miracles he pleases to do, any kind, any time. But God as redeemer, I want you to get this, had to go to the bloody cross of pain and shame, torture. He had to die there. He had to be buried. And he had to rise again from the dead for justification. And so I say, especially to the young person I was talking to a moment ago, so what? So what if the world in its contorted state can't see a blessed thing? And I put it that way deliberately. They can't see a blessed thing. The people that are buying into the world's values, they can't see a blessed thing. But you can. You have 20-20 vision. And it turns out in our passage, only this disabled guy had 20-20 vision. Everybody else was spiritually cross-eyed. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 11 where it says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So they say, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. This is interesting because, see, the Lycaonians, they had this legend that um, Zeus and Hermes, and by the way, these, the, the, these gods have Greek names here, but they're also the equivalent Roman names are Jupiter and Mercury, same gods, same gods. And so they, they came down once disguised as men to visit this. In fact, the legend came from this very area, this town of Lystra that we're talking about where this happened. This legend came from there, and they had this uh, temple outside the gates, as it says right in our text. And on either side of that temple were two trees. And uh, it was very interesting because the legend had it that... Uh, only two people in that village, uh, peasants by the name of uh, Philemon and his wife Bacchus, received these gods who had come down in the likeness of men. And uh, because the rest of the community rejected them, Zeus and Hermes wiped out the whole village, destroyed it. They built a, this temple, which is at the gates of the city. And when Philemon and Bacchus passed away, he turned them in, the, the gods turned them into these trees so they continue eternally watching over this beautiful temple to Jupiter. So that's how it, how it is. Now, these people uh, think that Paul and Barnabas have come in the likeness of men, and they don't want to repeat this terrible thing. So it, out of self-preservation, 
Here they are frantically gar gathering their garlands and gathering their oxen to, to actually sacrifice. Why? Because they're deathly afraid that this legend is going to happen again in, in their village. And so uh, Barnabas, by the way, he's the, he, he was thought of as larger. You know, Paul uh, is, was a man of short of stature. And so therefore, they called him uh, Mercury, or in this case, Hermes, the Greek name, because Mercury and Hermes is the, is the god of uh, eloquence. Whereas Zeus is the larger, he's the king of the gods, and so Barnabas uh, was called Zeus. So they were sure that's who they were anyway. So, so here's Bar Barnabas and Paul are about to become the recipients of great honor, respect, lauding, and worship. And what do they do? Here it comes. Next verse is verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Note, I just, just take a note in the beginning here. They're called apostles. Do you see that? Barnabas is called an apostle. Barnabas and Paul are called apostles by the Holy Spirit. Apostles means sent ones. You know, and I, I make note of this to warn any and all against making up rules about things. You know, like rules like... Only those who saw Jesus face to face could be called apostles. Or rules like the apostles. Yeah, the 12 plus Paul. You know, 12 plus 11 and then 12 with Matthias and then, then Paul. That's it. No, no. How about if instead of making up rules, how about we just listen to what the scriptures have to say? You know, I, I was taught this. I was taught that only the, only the 12 plus Paul, that only could be apostles. Those who saw Jesus face to face. Of course, Paul did on his way to Damascus, and so he could be an apostle. Listen, uh, Paul calls James, the Lord's brother, an apostle in Galatians 1.19. What does that do to our rule? Uh, because James was not numbered with the 11 nor the 12. Barnabas, did, does the scripture ever say that Barnabas saw Jesus face to face? No. Uh, so why make the rule? Let God speak through scripture. And Paul, as James said, let's be not many teachers who would take the, you know, so many people have taught wrong things. Let's listen to scripture. Here they called apostles, and they called Barnabas an apostle. So anyway, I just wanted to say that in passing, but here they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Now, tearing the garments, I think you recognize, is a sign of great distress, usually over somebody passing away in Jewish culture. But they, they rushed out into the crowd first because when they were speaking to the crowd, they're like at the head of the crowd. Everybody's facing them, and they're like at the head of the crowd. So to go away from the place of honor, they rush into the crowd. You see that? And the second reason that they rush into the crowd is, is because they, they wanted to be just like them instead of separate, separate at the head. And so it seems God often wants to honor an instrument God uses to bless somebody. In this case, these people want to honor these people who, through whom this miracle came. And, you know, and... Again, I have to think of the big show faith healers, and I'm putting, I'm, I'm giving them a black eye tonight. I mean, to this morning, I'm giving them a black eye because they deserve it, because they abuse people. Uh, they, they, they dress to the nines in, in brilliant clothing, and I'm not, I'm not against great clothing. I, I, 
I, I love good clothing, but, but they, they surround themselves with huge estates and servants and, and fancy cars, limousines, and so forth, uh, endless riches. Listen, because of this text that's before us today, I think the scriptures clearly come down on the side of the fact that the servants of God are just that. They have no light of their own. None. All of the light that any servant of Christ has comes from Jesus Christ, comes from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father. And we want to reflect the glory of Jesus to a dark world, to a dark world. We are to be like mirrors. And you've probably heard this, but the only time a mirror, and you're a mirror, I'm a mirror, hopefully a good one, the only time a mirror will draw attention to itself is when it's dirty or defective. Then it definitely draws attention to himself. And so if you see a servant of God drawing attention to himself and, and glorifying his ministry, and it's a very common thing, sadly, uh, remember that. Mirrors are supposed to be clear to reflect the true one. I read in the devotional this morning from uh, Chris Tigreen, which I love to read, by Carlo Caretto. He said, we are the wire. God is the current. Our only power is to let the current pass through us. Isn't that good? I love that. So Barnabas and Paul were saying, we're not gods, just men. You know, it's good to remember that ministers have the same weaknesses and temptations as everybody else. And Jesus made this point unforgettably, in my opinion, in, uh, in the scriptures where he said, the scri and this is Matthew 23, by the way, he said, the scribes and the Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you, who's he pointing to? You, you're his disciples, and you and I are his disciples today, I hope. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And that includes brothers, of course, and sisters. And so here, Barnabas and Paul, they humble themselves, not to be exalted, but to exalt God. And, and they speak about his remarkable goodness. So let's return to our text at, at verse 15, I believe. And we bring you good news, he's saying. Now he's speaking to those who are about to sacrifice to, to uh, Jupiter and Mercury, or, or as it, in the Greek it was um, um, Zeus and, and, and Hermes. And so we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And past generations... He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then it concludes that even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul was always culturally sensitive to people by the way, and here he is speaking to Gentiles. And you notice there's not one word in that message we just read, not a single word about Jewish prophets, not a word. 
in there. Uh, he, he's, he, he, he know, they don't know them. And so here he is, sensitive. He's, but he's pointing to his God, to his loving kindness, his incredible generosity, his faithfulness, season in and season out. Yet still these people couldn't turn their hearts or minds to the goodness of God. Why was that? Well, I believe that the enemy of our souls designed an amazing system in this whole business of pleasing the gods. You know, you, you please the gods and you get children, land, crops, gain. Please the gods. But if you displease the gods, uh-oh, look out, look out. So if the gods are angry, you lose big time. This whole system of worship of the gods by the Romans and the Greeks were driven by self-interest and fear all over the ancient world it was adopted uh, again it was carefully crafted by Satan himself I believe you know they had gods of fertility and sex that's Aphrodite in the Greek and and Venus in the Roman gods of harvest Demeter in the Greek and Ceres in the Romans gods of war Ares and Mars and on and on and on, whatever aspect of life you want, there is a God to either please or a God to risk the danger of displeasing by not bringing the required sacrifice at the required time. So it's children you want, the gods would say, or the, the priest, he would say, well, how many do you want? Five? Ten? No problem. You give me one in the fire, I'll give you five alive. You give me two, I'll give you ten. That's the way that worked. No problem. Child sacrifice. Orgies. You see, it's all about you and what you want, what that sin nature wants. Or what you lust after. Or what you are deathly afraid of losing. Deathly afraid of losing. So the enemy of your souls says, sacrifice your child give you more than you could hope for. Your sacrifice your virginity, sacrifice your honor. You get pleasure. It's all about you. It's all for you. Just one little pill, one little drink. It's not going to hurt. What are you afraid of? What could it hurt? You see how this works? It's really not hard to see who's behind this, is it? Remember how Jesus taught, he said, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. That they might have life, might have it abundantly, John 10, 10. And so these people in Lystra here, they've been in bondage to this system, to the darkness of, of paganism, to greed, to envy. Satan has robbed them. He's, he's killed them. He's destroyed their families. He's destroyed their peace through this whole system. Now imagine starting a conversation with somebody who all his life has only had two drives, selfish gain and fear. Try turning the conversation to Christ, you know, to God making, being the one who makes the sacrifice on your behalf, who did all the work. Oh, no, that won't do. There's no, there's no pride or self-glory in that, is there? So in total contrast to these pagan schemes, Paul is preaching life, life that's abundant in Jesus Christ, life that's abundant for family. What God has joined together, let 
not man separate. Don't go into these cults, these, these uh, orgies and the other things that the gods demand and require. You don't need to do that. In total contrast to their schemes, Jesus taught love, honor, and respect even for the little children, for every little child. Don't harm the babies. They're an incredibly precious gift. How can our society do that? People have lost their minds because they don't have the love of God. Don't harm the babies. Born or unborn, they're a precious gift of God. So precious. And Paul is bringing this gift to these people who are under this, this, this system. He's saying, Jesus is the gift to you, Lycaonians, not the, the one not only who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, and now who not only gave you fruitful season and, and food for gladness, but who gave himself up for your benefit. He died for you and rose again for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your eternal enjoyment at his side. Naturally, and I mean naturally, this was so hard for them to get. And just before they may have gotten it, guess who should arrive just in time? Let's turn to our text in verse 19. Guess who should arrive? Yes. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Question arises, would Barnabas and Paul have fled from Antioch to Iconium if it were not for this hot persecution? Would Barnabas and Paul have fled from Iconium to this present town that we're talking about here, Lystra, if it were not for the persecution that arose, plot to, to kill them? Probably not. You know, it appears that because of persecution, many heard the gospel who otherwise would not have. Remember back in the days in, when the, in the community in Jerusalem that when persecution arose, you know, when, they, when, when Herod put James to death by the sword, they fled all over the Middle East. And so eventually there was churches here and churches there and the church in Antioch that became the, the home church that is sending Paul and Barnabas on this journey. It's amazing, isn't it, the, the role that persecution played in bringing the gospel all throughout the ancient world and bringing, eventually, you and me into this, into this community of faith. It's beautiful, isn't it? So, God, the question is, did he send the persecution? And the answer is directly, no, of course not. We know where the persecution came from, but he used it for good. They meant it for evil, and he meant it for good. That's how that works. So they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's verse 19, the rest of verse 19. Now, many people think, and rightly so, because they've looked at timelines, and it appears that about 14 years after this event, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And it was in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul wrote this. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. 
God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And so, was he dead? Listen, if Paul didn't know, uh, and our text says the ones who stoned him supposed he was dead, this, this, the scripture is silent on whether he was dead or whether he was alive. And so it's actually not important. It wasn't important enough to, for God to reveal it to Paul, whether he was in the body or out of the body, and it wasn't important enough to reveal it to us. And so what do the scriptures say, Paul writes in Romans 10. I love that phrase. What do the scriptures say? That's all we need to know. And the scriptures are silent on whether he was actually alive or dead, so it really doesn't matter. But um, we do know that this stoning, I think, likely left permanent scars on his body. Uh, of course, he had many other beatings for the scars he talked about. In Galatians 6.17, he said, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. But we read in our text that when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Does somebody have a Kleenex? I would appreciate it if you bring it up, please. The text is understated here. The question is, did they, did they pray over him? Did they lay hands on him? Surely they made mud with their spittle. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. That's, that's good. Thank you. Surely they made mud with their spittle and anointed his head, right? I mean, so many things people make up that are not in the Scripture. You know, my imagination tells me they came around him and they prayed over him, you know, with, with, with intense, intense prayers. That's what my imagination says. But that's my imagination. That's not what the text says. And I believe we, we really need to honor the text and listen to it. And the text doesn't say that. What we do see is Paul got up. And what I'm amazed about, which I find it is, is, is really quite a miracle, is he goes right back into the very city that stoned him with Barnabas only to leave for Derby the next day. I'd say given the kind of persecution that he just faced, not a bad decision to move on, right? And so that, that's interesting, isn't it? So now these next three verses that we're about to read here are very, very important because they give us a classic portrayal of what is known in missiology as the Pauline cycle, the Pauline cycle. And the Pauline cycle, by the way, and I'm going to say this ahead of time before we read it together so that you get a sense of the kind of verbs and actions that go on here in this passage. The Pauline cycle is preach the gospel, gather people together who believe, strengthen them, appoint servant leaders over them, and move on. And that's a cycle. And he did it again and again. He did it in Antioch of Pisidia. He did it in Iconium. He did it in Lystra. And they're moving on. He's doing it in Derby. And so that's the cycle that we're talking about. Now, so I'll read it together. Well, let's read it together. Uh, and I'll read, When they pre had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there again you have it. 
and you can see the actions that happened here. Preaching, gathering, strengthening, appointing servant leaders, and moving on. And they did it in every place. I want to confess to you this morning that I, I actually love to read all sorts of Christian literature. Uh, I'm still going through one Lily May gave me. Lily, thank you for it. I enjoy it so much. But, you know, I love fiction and nonfiction. Francine Rivers is one of my favorite uh, fiction authors. I love reading Francine Rivers. I don't get to read as much as I'd like to lately, but just the same. I love all sorts of literature, biographies. I love theology. I love reading theology, and I love commentaries of all sorts. But sometimes we miss the simple things in the text, don't we? I do. I miss them. And oftentimes uh, it'll come to my attention through something like what Pastor Drew, last Sunday, he, he was speaking about the very first thing in the text that chapter 14 opens with. And he pointed out, he focused on the words, they and together in the very first sentence. And here, let's read it together. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. It's very simple, but we could miss that important they. This was a team. They were doing things shoulder to shoulder. This is the team that the Lord had put together. And so sometimes we, we overemphasize principles and, and theories and, and so forth. And so sometimes we just need to pay attention to the simple things in the text. And going back to our text, now if you would, Luke, could you show uh, verses 21 to 23 again on the screen that we had up there? Um, I want you to look at this text again. And I would just... Look at, just peruse it briefly and tell me, how many times is the name Paul mentioned in this text where we're reading about the Pauline cycle? Don't see it there. Okay, don't see it? Nobody? All right, thank you. That's the correct answer. Um, the final exam will be, never mind. Uh, <laughs> that's the correct answer. So, zero. Now look again and notice how many times do we see the word they? A few more times, right? I mean, I love that point that Drew made last Sunday about they. And I'm so happy because if he hadn't made it, I wouldn't be talking to you about the they in this passage, okay? And, and I think it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I love theology. I really do. And I appreciate the value of it. It's so, so important. But in our love of this cycle being essentially Pauline, could we not err by thinking, oh, what a great person Paul was. We'll never see another one like him, will we? So let the purely Pauline things belong to his day, and we'll just kind of struggle along with what belongs to ours. That would be an error in thinking, wouldn't it? It would be an error in thinking. This passage, I believe, brothers and sisters, is for us. It's not for Paul's day. It's for our day so that we can see in this cycle things that the Holy Spirit, that our Lord Jesus would have us doing in our day. Let's look at the cycle briefly again together. In verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, let us 
dear friends, be the they of this passage to preach the gospel to our families, to our friends, in our small groups, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, to share about Christ with the people that the Lord allows us to come into contact with. Let us be the they of this passage. And in uh, continuing in verse, tw- in verse 21, they returned to Lystra and I- Iconium, Antioch. What did they do? They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So let's do this, not the, necessarily the Pauline way, but the, let's do it our way as God grants us grace and motivation to gather people who believe into small groups and bring them into the family of families. It's his family and our family. And by the way, the prosperity gospel crowd, I want to give them a black eye too, and, un, and, and, and unapologetically, they will never understand the prosperity gospel crowd, will never understand how we can encourage, encourage anyone by telling them that they have many tribulations ahead on their journey. And this is exactly what Drew has been telling us week after week as we've been going through the Acts. And I don't know about you, but I am greatly encouraged when I see people in the face of the fear of death who continue to seek for people to preach the truth, to stand for the truth in spite of great opposition. That encourages me when I see that. And when Paul came back through these communities where they endured so much persecution, he told them, yep, that's a part of it. If you're going to stand for our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're going to believe in his resurrection, if you're going to preach the truth, you're going to stand in the truth, you can expect it. And all who live godly in this age will face persecution. It may not be this kind. It's going to be one kind or another. You're going to get it. You're going to, but I am encouraged by this. I see how their hearts were full of the love of God in Jesus their Lord and what they were willing to endure just to get the message to the ones who would believe. Now that is remarkable and it's, it's miraculous, but it's the power of God in Jesus Christ and that power is available to you and to me. So when they had appointed elders, we read in verse 23, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And this is also for you and for me in our day. Because as people come together in communities, uh, elders are, are appointed because they're hopefully people with servant hearts. Hopefully people that think of those who are around them as more important than they themselves. The Word of God never even hints at a hierarchy that came uh, in later ages and later centuries, the hierarchy in the whole history of the church. I often think it's not the history of the church, it's the history of the broken church, excuse me. But the living church has always been in small groups, humble groups, and the elders, if they were elders at all that were appointed, were humble people that cared for the souls and thought of others as more important than themselves, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. And I think that's a great quality. And the elders, they were, they were there for mentoring, teaching, encouraging others. And, and that was, was something that he, he never left any 
small group or any small church without the care of people that would love them and guard them and see to their continued growth. And uh, I find it interesting. I want to just say this also, by the way, that when we were talking about they in this passage and the importance of the word they, I think it's extremely important in this passage. And I think that I find that when they are named together in this passage, if you look at the text we read through and go back through it, you'll find out that Barnabas and Paul are named in that order specifically, Barnabas and Paul. But when I opened my Bible, I was reading the ESV, and look at my chapter head, or my, my section headings in that chapter, it always says Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. Paul and Barnabas, the opposite. My, cha- my headings say Paul and Barnabas, but the text says Barnabas and Paul. And what does the Holy Spirit have in mind by putting Barnabas first? I would just like to remind you that Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas, the Lord put Paul on Barnabas' heart and his mind. He went and sought him out. Barnabas gave Paul mission opportunities that he otherwise would not have had, drew him into the community of faith in Antioch, and worked with him there year after year, encouraging him, mentoring him. Paul was the gifted orator. He was the one who had that gift of speech. But Barnabas, no less important. In fact, in this, in this passage, the Holy Spirit puts him first. So it's Barnabas and Paul, not Paul and Barnabas. Now, why does my chapter headings, why do my headings say Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas? Because we oftentimes are focused on people and not on the Lord. And we're also, because of all of these words like Pauline cycle, you know, they sound really, really educated, don't they? It's really something very, very simple that the Holy Spirit gave to this team, and yet we have to call it Pauline. And I'm not, I'm not again, I'm not dissing theology. I do love it. I, I, I value it highly. But if I'm ever forced to make a choice between theology and the Word, I'm going to take the Word. And people are oftentimes busy, and I have been. I've erred in this, and I admit it. I've erred in this way. I've, I've, uh, people are, are they, they think it has more value sometimes, people's comments, than the Word itself. And I know that I, the idea is to try to understand the Word. I'm reminded of a theological conference for theologians where the chief speaker was Karl Barth, the great theologian Karl Barth. And the way he opened the conference was he came up behind the podium and he said, in the beginning was the Word. And then through theologians, it became mere words. And the whole place broke out in laughter, of course. They're probably nervous laughter because oftentimes we honor people in Christian service way too much. And so to properly name this marvelous cycle that we've read about of preaching, gathering, teaching, appointing servant leaders, and moving on, maybe we should call it not the Pauline cycle, or, but maybe we should call it the, like the Holy Spirit kind of did in this passage, the Barnabasian cycle, okay? Or maybe we should call it something else, something that is more close to who we are. You know, Paul 
said it this way. He said, and this is, by the way, the Pauline way. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, if anyone imagines that he knows something, <clears throat> he doesn't know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. That's the gift. We have had for too many years, and I have suffered from this in my life, a knowledge-based idea of discipleship. That wasn't Jesus' idea. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? It's not knowledge-based. You know, just if you know Revelation or Genesis to Revelation, you, can, you memorize it, or you become a doctor. And I'm not saying it's wrong. We need doctors of philosophy and theology, and we need them. We need them. They're, they're valuable to us. But listen, not at the expense of obedience. You know, our discipleship, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we need to first obey. And you know, if you, if you obey first, he's going to reveal things about himself. He's going to reveal things about himself. So, so, so we need an obedience-based obedience-based thought and idea of, of discipleship. So that was the Pauline way. Knowledge puffs up. Okay. So now let's read our concluding verses for Acts 14, in, beginning in verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia. When they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Three quick notes on this little text. At no time during this first missionary journey did they go without the love and care of their sending church their home church, their family of families. They were sent ones from the family of families. That's important. Secondly, remember that this was a very, very lengthy return on foot and by boat, 575 miles in that day. Can you imagine? And so when they finally arrived, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's interesting, isn't it? Let me ask you something. Why didn't they talk about the acts of the apostles? Ever think about that? Once again, my section headings and the names of these books, they were not part of the text. It was people. Men calls this the acts of the apostles. Drew has said that it probably should have been called the acts of the Holy Spirit. And when they came back, they didn't talk about our acts. They didn't talk about this is what I did and what's what we did and this is what we did next. Listen, they said, they talked about all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith. Finally, they remained no little time with the disciples. Listen, love is time. You love your family, you spend time with them. I'm so thankful that Drew and Lori can have this time today with their children. I think they... I think that they, they're, they're tuned in and listening to the service, and I, and I hope they are. But they are, they, they need, you need time. We need time with our families. 
need to make time with our families. This is a community of faith. It shouldn't be all about one event, church event after another, a church event after another. It's not about that. This is about relationships. This is about love. This is about the truth who is in Jesus Christ. And that's what binds us together and gives us a sense that we love one another, we care for one another, and we're a family. We spend time. Disciples cannot be made in absentia. They had their journey. It wasn't an easy journey. It was a hard one. They came back and they spent a lot of time, a lot of time, not about that, but about them. And that's, that's what it's about. So I come back to the church sign that I saw with Colleen this last week in Bologna. It said, here and obey Acts. Eternity is too long to spend in the wrong place. Yes, Acts tells us about things that happened then. But for you and I, it's for us. It's for our day. It's for, from God, by the Holy Spirit, to live richly here in us. And for us to walk it out, to live it out daily. So we're not going to call this today. It's okay that the theologians do, and I'm not going to disagree with them. To call this the Pauline cycle that we just read about the cycle of, of preaching and gathering and strengthening and appointing servant leaders and m- moving on, that cycle is for you and me. Let's call it the... Uh, the Drew and Lori Kleinian cycle. Let's call it the Jerry and Sue Kittian cycle. How's that? That sounds pretty good. The Daryl and Tracy Adcockian cycle. Let's call it the Tim and Rebecca Helmian cycle. There we go. Sounds good. Now, Tim doesn't like that. He's a humble man, I tell you. Let's call it the Justin and Kim Elrodian cycle, the D and Kim Brownian cycle. Let's call it the Carl and Heidi Sorellian cycle. Let's call it, in short, our cycle. It's for us to gather. It's for us to preach, to gather, to strengthen, to appoint humble servants, and to move on. That's for us. That's for us. It's what we're to be about. And it's for us in our day, South City Church. So let's do it. Let's walk in it. And let's be ready to watch our God at work doing the only thing, the things that only He can do, the miracles of changing souls and making new people to walk in newness of life. Let's do that. And let's go together. Amen? Thank you. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we are in awe of Barnabas and Paul. We are in awe of how they gave themselves into your hands for the purposes for which you called them to reach the souls that those humble people and that lame, that disabled man whom you healed for your glory. Oh, dear Lord, we need you. And we come before you asking humbly that you would inspire us to walk out this cycle that we see in this this passage in our lives. 
to share with our neighbors and our friends and our, our, our loved ones, uh, people we meet along the way. Give us the courage to realize that it is a life and death matter and that eternity is a long time to spend in the wrong place. Heavenly Father, this is, this is your family of families here in South Little Rock. We give ourselves to you, our hearts and our minds, in the time, the gift of time that you've given us to spend with our loved ones and others, that we might also come to you one day having made disciples. And that you would say, well done, good and faithful servant to each one of us. Lord, we give ourselves to you and give you thanks for the way that you are raising us up to be the church of your own desires. For all of these good things, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.